Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation. Today I have with me Josh Tanzer and Gabor Vary. Gabor is the entrepreneur of residence and Josh is the managing partner of Principia Growth, which is a growth capital firm based in Los Angeles and New York, focused on late stage private technology investments. Josh is a 25-year veteran of Silicon Valley and growth capital, having arranged and invested in over 160 late stage financing, totaling over $6.5 billion. So let's start there. Growth capital. I think oftentimes a very misunderstood investment thesis asset class. I think oftentimes it gets conflated with either VC or private equity. Could you maybe start with background and then weaving that into maybe a a definition that people can get a handle on of what exactly growth capital is? That's a great place to start. Thanks, Brian. Growth capital is a bit what it sounds like. It's, It's capital, it's equity capital that goes into a business. Typically, we focus just in technology companies for their continued growth of their business. Typically, it's sales and marketing, product development, you know, international expansion. Sometimes it could be also growth through acquisition. And the, the differentiating features of growth equity versus private equity or venture capital is private equity is typically defined as investors taking a controlling stake in a business. We're in growth equity. That, the definition of us is we're, we're taking a minority stake. We're just providing capital to continue the arc of growth of a business. And then what differentiates us from venture capital, which is to be perfectly frank, a very different sport. And I'll maybe expound on that later is th- those are companies that are early stage. They could be C, pure startup seed, early stage 
pre-product market fit, pre-revenue. And there's even, you know, kind of late venture, which may mean that there is revenue, but it's, you know, de minimis, it's a few million, maybe it's under five or even 10 million. They're still searching for that product market fit. And where growth equity gets involved, and certainly our flavor of growth equity, and I should probably say there, there you know, there, there's different parts of growth equity. We, we are involved once there is a very defined product market fit with software companies or internet-based companies, marketplaces, whatever the industry is within tech. And there are substantial proof points that the customers of this business are buying the product or service and they'll continue, they are continuing to buy it. There's repeat customers and there's a defined value proposition really for those customers. So that we don't have to generally worry about a business, you know, going out of business, certainly any time in the near future, you know, the the arc of any business over, you know, decades, you know, things can get supplanted. But but in the near term, our arc, the companies we're investing in are are not going to go out of business. And 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 it's it's proven out in our track record where where the as as you mentioned, I've been involved investing growth equity for 25 years and arranging those financings on large platforms. So I, I had the benefit of kind of creating the the, the soup that uh, then investors bought into. And then, and then to be fair, we bought into our transactions as well. The, you know, we, we generally have nine out of 10 of our deals make money. It's the inverse of venture capital where typically the only two or three make money and the rest are write-offs. And then, and then again, differentiated from private equity where they're taking a controlling stake and and that's really the the big difference with with private equity. And let's dig a little bit deeper into the background because I think it informs the current investment thesis. You came up through fairly, you know, big bulge bracket traditional investment banking platforms. What was that like being a tech investment banker in the 90s? It must have been, I don't know if fun is the right uh, adjective, but certainly you've got some some pretty deep experience in the space. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think fun is certainly one of the adjectives. You know, we did work hard. We, we did play hard and, uh, it was an exciting time because you got to be on the forefront. We were certainly on the forefront of the creation of, you know, what's called Internet 1.0 and we had many successful kind of hits out of that era. And I'll, I'll mention a few in a minute, but it, you know, these larger platforms are, you know, I was, I was, I came up through the Credit Suisse tech group. In Palo Alto, uh, which is was very well known, a gentleman by the name of Frank Watrone started it. He was a senior banker at Morgan Stanley that left Morgan Stanley to create the Credit Suisse Group, and we were, you know, pretty much the dominant leader for about a ten-year run there. And it was during that time that I ran the growth equity practice for Frank for in the tech group, and we had the hit parade of you know Commerce One and Unwired Planet and Interwoven. Exodus. It was, you know, all the different aspects of the internet, US web, which is a web creation company. Exodus, I mentioned was data, one of the first web hosting companies. So it, it was, it was very exciting. And then our track record was kind of through the roof. So in those transactions, you know, cause I, I would, I would, I would keep track of how our deals did. We were investing in them. We were arranging financings. We had other investors in them. They actually averaged about just over 10x or 11x return, generally in less than three years. So they were through the roof. And that was an abnormal time of growth equity. So I want to be clear that you know, I, I bifurcate our track record between the internet years and then post-internet, kind of 2004 on. And I want to continue on with the, the history, but this is a, a good jumping off point. 
Do you see any parallels of what's been playing out the last three to five years in the exuberance of tech investing today versus what you experienced in the 90s? Well, the, the one similarity that I see today is obviously in the crypto market where, you know, I think blockchain, you know, and I'll use crypto or blockchain interchangeably, even though they are two different things, but there, there's a certain amount of euphoria and, and I think a little bit of a bubble happening in crypto slash blockchain that, you know, we, we, for those of us with, who've lived through uh, different tech bubbles, I can see this at some point bursting at some point, but we do think those technology, I want to be clear, we don't dismiss those technologies. Just like, uh, you know, when the internet bubble burst, the internet didn't go away. So the, and there's still good opportunities to invest. So I think we're being cautious on where we would deploy capital in blockchain technologies companies and, and, and really being careful about the valuations we would pay there. But I do think blockchain technologies, there's some similarities between internet 1.0 and what's going on with DeFi. And I think that's, I think it's here to stay. And in terms of background, what led you to go from the investment banking side to the principal side? Right. Well, it, it's interesting. So, you know, 20 plus years, quote, working on these large platforms. So it was really, I had Credit Suisse for approximately a decade, Lazard, and then most recently Jefferies. These are all global firms, big platforms. Doing, by the way, I did nothing but growth equity the entire time. So I really was more of what's called in the ECM world, equity capital markets. I was, I was in the banking group, but I was really, you know, doing financings, not, not, you know, IPOs and not M&A. So being in that platform, my, my, you know, that's that's why we created Principia. You know, I was just one of, I was a senior person and oftentimes leading the groups, but on these large platforms, you know, your, your judgment gets watered down. There's different factions and, and politics involved. And so I couldn't really execute, especially in the later years to the, you know, kind of plan to the, that I, that I had. Uh, the, the one interesting point I'll, I'll go back, you know, when I was working for Frank Quattrone, you know, he really gave me free reign to manage our growth equity business. And, and that, that is when I probably had my best deals and, and, and really did my best work. And then on the later platforms, I didn't have as much control. And, and that's really what prompted the formation of Principia. And I can, you know, get into that or we can go a different direction at this point. Yeah. Let's get into it. I mean, that, that's a logical leap that a lot of people make, right? They are in the investment banking space. Then they want to be on the principal side, but maybe help educate people about kind of the relationship between banking, growth equity, principal side, how all these players work together within this ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I occupied a fairly, a, actually a very unique position that I was investing capital, typically either my own capital or, or, or employee capital, and then working actually with family offices and individuals to invest in our deals. So that, you know, again, I had a little bit of a capital markets function. And, and then we, I took that and because I wasn't just a pure coverage officer or an IPO banker or an M&A banker, I had this deep expertise and relationships with venture capitals, excuse me, venture capitalists, CEOs, CFOs in the community, in, in the ecosystem that I could then take that and bring that entire experience and relationships to Principia. And, and then what happened, the, 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 how Principia, the, really the incarnation was, the, was a little bit of the reverse inquiry. Several family offices that had been investing in my deals early on and had, you know, we generated very attractive returns actually gave me the idea and helped me whiteboard how we could set up Principia. 
that it was really, they wanted to have me generate an independent platform so that we could just do uh, the deals that myself and, and to be fair, my, my partners thought were the best deals and at the right prices as well. And, and that, that was kind of the, kind of the light bulb went off. And those conversations went on for a couple of years prior to me actually pulling the trigger in 2020 and, and formally setting up Principia in early 2020. So there was these long conversations and then also some macroeconomic things happening. What was it about that, that multi-factor analysis that made 2020 the right time to move forward? Well, yeah, that's a fair comment question, right? So why now or why then exactly? So myself and these family offices has also invested in a lot of funds and there were growth equity funds, some PE funds. And I think we were all frustrated with the performance of those funds in terms of IRRs and, and MOICs and return on capital. And then also the length of those funds. You know, we, I, I think until recently, I still had a 2005 fund I invested in. I, I still had assets in it, which is 17 years later. Um, and, and I want to be clear, I wasn't alone. The, the, these family offices had this exact same experience. So the, the, the catalyst for Principia was people being frustrated. When I say people, you know, individual investors, family offices, and myself with this fund structure that seemed to be broken or certainly suboptimal, I'll put it that way. So what makes you different? Why is the mousetrap better with Presympia after all your experience and, and all these other players that you have on the team? Yeah, that, no, that's that's great. Look, this is what we spent. That's what I kind of spent the two years thinking about it. I don't want to just create the same mousetrap because there's, you know, per, I don't know if there's hundreds of them, but there's, you know, certainly everybody knows probably listening. There are lots of funds and growth equity funds, PE funds, real estate funds, et cetera. So we really whiteboarded uh, the idea of creating something that's different and, and, but, but, and, and really how we could do that and still generate attractive returns, obviously. And we came up with a, 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 a little bit of a, something that's a little bit common, but we had some twists to it. So we came up with a deal by deal fund structure so that our family offices and individual investors are not paying fees on uninvested capital. That, that also was a, was a, a burr under people's saddle, uh, including my own, on having to pay these, you know, especially if you're in a lot of funds, it adds up on how much you're paying for capital that's sitting in your own pocket. So as a deal by deal fund, we, we eliminate that, number one. Then two, we have, as a deal by deal fund, you can, you can flex up or down the amount of capital you want to invest in each deal. And it, when you're committed to a fund, you know, your, your percentage of that fund in each deal is set. So if you're, you know, if you're 10% of the fund, obviously that's a big number, but you know, five or 10%, whatever it is, that's how much you're going to get of that deal. In our structure, you could, you know, we present investment memos and we'll get into our process a little bit later and say, you really like this sector, you really like the CEO, or you just have more capital deploy and you can actually invest more than what you did in a previous deal. Or the inverse is true. If you're having liquidity issues or for whatever reason, you know, you'd like to invest less into a particular deal. Maybe you don't like it as much, that sector, and, and, and then you can do that. And thirdly on this, you could actually opt out of a deal. And, and obviously, some of our investors do that. I encourage people to not do that because if it gets through all our screens, and I'll, I guess, I'm hopeful we'll talk about our screening process later, you know, it, 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 if it meets all our criteria, generally speaking, uh, you know, I, you know, in our track record, you know, some of my breakout returns, I, you know, when we invest, I don't know which is going to be the breakout 10x plus return. 
and which will be a suboptimal return, maybe you know one and a half X. So I encourage all of our investors, whenever you think about doing deals with Principia, to come in every deal, although it's not obligated. And But if you don't like a particular, for whatever reason, or your liquidity, you have liquidity issues, you know, just come in for less. And, and that's so. So those are some of the benefits that we have as a, a Principia structure. Still, let me just add, well, still providing professional fund management level experience. So myself with my 25 years of experience, generating, you know, in the most recent vintage of the last 15 years, about a three and a half X return on, on 25 transactions, 90% of which had positive returns. And then we have partners, uh, Sunny Meta in New York and his experience. And then we have a deep advisory board of operating executives, CEOs, CFOs, and founders who help us with our diligence as well. And, and you get all of that professionally managed fund experience on this new type of platform. So let's get into the investment set today. I mean, you talked about the criteria, you talked about screens and your filters. What are the most exciting industries or, or opportunities that you see in play today and how are you taking advantage of them? Yeah, well, by sector. So we are we are pan technology investors with a heavy emphasis in software. And if you go to our website and see our advisory board, you'll understand why. So we have you know deep, deep domain expertise and, and myself experienced, you know, 15 plus years in SaaS companies, software as a service. And those, by the way, I go, we go back far enough that those used to be called ASPs and those old enough to remember that they were called application service providers. And we invested in Salesforce very early on when it was approximately 25 million of ARR, annual recurring revenue. And we had met Mark Benioff. And then the CEO at that time was a gentleman named John Dillon. John was a former CEO of Arbor Software, which Oracle had bought. And he actually had worked with Mark at Oracle. And he's, by the way, he subsequently has joined our advisory board. He was probably one of the first calls I made. But anyway, we invested in Salesforce early on when it was the ASP industry and obviously it did extraordinarily well. And, but because of that transaction, we, we very comfortable software and we invested a lot. So within software, we're, we're particularly focused in data analytics and DevOps, which is software development soft platform for software development and, and, and then also anything around fintech infrastructure is another area that we're very focused on. And that would include blockchain infrastructure, which is kind of a broader extension of fintech. So those are, those are kind of the core areas where we focus today. I think we've all seen the, the power and the durability of the tech sector, and it's really become a huge part of the, the GDP of the US, the world in general. We all believe that story and we live it every day. I mean, we're talking over Zoom and you know all these things. But what are some areas and sectors within the tech industry that you are staying away from? <laughs> well, <laughs> that that's probably a, a big swath of areas. By the way, we, I forgot to mention we we, are, we do like the whole theme and thesis around automation. So we actually do have a couple of investments in autonomous software technology, uh, specifically around industrial use. One for trucking, one for inside warehouses and and, and, and distribution centers. You know the, the areas that you know. So so it's a quick. There's a quick one that comes to mind. You know, there's a, a lot of fickleness in B two C deals. So you know, you, you haven't heard me talk too much about B two C deals. And the one area we, we we do spend some time on is marketplaces for consumers. But but like pure e commerce plays. You know, it's you know whether it's food delivery or other con- you know, content delivery online, you know, we, we tend to stay away from that. We, we think it's highly competitive. 
Consumers can be fickle. There can be new technologies that immediately leap above above existing technologies. And so your competitive moat ends up being a little bit more suspect. So we're, we're, we're very cautious around those areas. And then, and then, you know, within, and then, then there's some things that are kind of hardware related, whether it be new types of communication devices for conferencing or phones, or even some things within IOT, there's, a, there's some hardware component. We, we're pretty shy about that as well. But yeah, that, that gives you a flavor for what we probably won't be doing. And you alluded to this earlier about this difference between venture capital, traditional private equity, and you're a little bit of a Goldilocks. Yeah. You hear a lot about multiples being you know, compressed within private equity. I feel like every, every and I know I'm in a, you know, a certain world, but it feels like everybody I know is in little, lower middle market buyout private equity. Um, I don't know how they can find enough deals, to be honest with you. But you're a little bit of a different animal. Could you maybe describe exactly the deal size, maturity, and then how that relates to the return profile you're solving for? Yeah. And it, so deal size, very simple. So we're, we're, you know, we're late stage. So companies are generally raising 50 million to kind of the 150 or so range that we're involved with. Um, and to be fair, right now we're, you know, we're kind of a 10 million, $15 million check size. So either, so that isn't sufficient to lead deals right now. Part, part of our right, you know, goal is to get larger and be able to lead transactions. I've led you know, 30 plus transactions in my career. But here, you know, I need to grow the, the investor base to do that. So we're followers. Um, and so we have to be very careful on, you know, what what that lead, how much diligence they did. You know, we always talk to the lead investor and obviously very analytical around what valuation they paid. And we like to understand the dynamic and how, how they got to that valuation and what they expect as a return to see if it aligns with our expectations. Our, our general Underwriting criteria is a 3x plus return in, you know, three to four years on the early side, two years, but, you know, typically three to four years. And if, you know, we're not leading the deal, if we didn't price it and somebody priced it to just a straight up 2x in that time period, which often is, you know, we, unfortunately we do see that uh, some of these larger funds, I can talk about that later as well. You know, we'll have to pass because it just doesn't meet our criteria. So we're, we're trying to get into companies that have momentum, that have wind in the sails in terms of the sector they're in, that have very experienced management, typically at the CEO and especially at the CRO level, chief revenue officer, maybe CTO as well. And then we make sure we're aligned with management and with the other board members that there's some kind of expectation of a liquidity event in the next two to three years. And if there's not, you know, there's, there's no right answer. There's no you know, oh, that's terrible. No, the answer is it's just not a principia deal. <laughs> we'll wait, we'll wait, maybe. What we don't want to do is get into a t- transaction where either the board or the CEO thinks that this is just, you know, a kind of a lifestyle and we want to grow it for five, seven, 10 years and then see what happens. You know, I think that's what our family offices had experienced with some of their fund investments that extended for many, many, too many years. And we're, we're so we're pretty, we have our antenna up. On, on trying to avoid those type of situations. And subsequently, actually, one of the first four deals we did, we already had a liquidity event, an IPO, which to be fair, would not have gone into that deal had there not been this plan for the IPO 
within the first two years of the investment. I think um, this point on the timing of our and our hold period on the investments is really important. You know, earlier we were talking about the difference between growth capital and private equity. You know, private equity, you're, we're generally looking at five to seven year holds. But here at Principia, you know, as Josh mentioned, we're talking about underwriting, generally speaking, base case returns of 3x over a three to four year hold period. Our SPVs are five year, have five year long terms. So I think it's critical when the audience is listening to, you know, these numbers about three or four X returns, those are nice for private equity when they hold an asset over a seven plus years. We're talking about a much shorter hold period. So the IRR figures are significantly different between asset classes as well. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. In, in today's environment where, you know, up until I guess a year ago, when there was a lot of M&A uh, and IPO activity, companies were staying private for longer. Yeah. How do you protect against that? And then how does that dovetail into just downside protection in general when you're underwriting these investments? Yeah, that's a big question. That may take, we'll, <laughs> we'll take that in multiple pieces. So, so we, you know, we have the benefit of, a, and, I, and I, I bring a lot of capital markets experience. So I, but, but my knowledge and my connectivity into the, the investment banking firms, specifically the capital market desk, you know, we, we understand what it's going to take to get a company public. And, and so there's, there's kind of the, what is necessary. And then also intent of going back to the board and the CEO, what it is they want to do. So again, these, the first one we get right is, you know, and, and diligence is does the CEO and board want to have a liquidity event in two to three years? And it's, that's typically where we're going to play or invest in most of the time. If it, and then secondly, we'll go back to our, capital markets expertise and confirm that given the growth pattern, the growth arc, you know, margin profile sector, that that such IPO type event could happen in that time frame. Because we do hear many companies say, oh yeah, we're going public in a year or two years. And you know, again, we know what it takes to go public by sector. And oftentimes, you know, that's it's just not lined up. So it doesn't matter what the intent of the business is. We don't we're whatever we 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 don't think it's going to happen. So again, we'll pass on that type of situation. That I think we bring a lot of expertise to be able to tell that. And then I'm sorry, what was the other part of the question? Just the downside protection in general. You know how you structure these type of investments to ensure that you know there's there's uh, protection for the investors. Yeah, thank you. No, absolutely. So that that's paramount to Principia. So we talked about the upside with the returns that we get in a, I would say, a relatively short time frame, as, as Gabor pointed out, especially compared to other asset classes. But then we also put equal emphasis. And if we don't see the downside protection in a deal, despite some attractive upsides, you know, th- this is why, you know, we, we pass on, you know, we, we only do two or three deals a year and we see approximately 150 opportunities each year. And so what percent? It's, you know, less than 2% hit rate. Um, and it's oftentimes not so much that the upside is, you know, not attractive. It's they don't have any downside. And, and we, we really look for companies that have, you know, M&A value, that have an exit. They could pull, I call it pull the ripcord early. If the company 
doesn't get to the promised land of a potential IPO because the growth arc has stalled or flattened, that there's a sufficient business you know, value underlying the, the core business that strategic buyers, perhaps private equity, but mostly strategic buyers would come in and certainly want to own this entity because of their technology, because of their customer base, you know, all sorts of things that strategic value that a company would get acquired. And, and so we look at what we are highly confident the company could get acquired for, assuming a, a, you know, not, ex, you know, a deceleration of the company and that we look at what that value would be. And is it greater than the preference stack that we're investing into? And, and for those that aren't familiar, all of our investments in growth equity are into preferred stock. Again, that's one of the, a little bit of the crazy things we've been seeing in this the bull market up until this year is a lot of funds are invested in common. And so they don't have this protection. So we, you know, we had been offered some of those deals and we passed on them and some high, very high profile firms did them. But we're looking for that being a preferred stock, which means you come out with your liquidation preference, which is typically the amount of money you put in. So if we write a $10 million check, we have a $10 million preference. And, and if you add up all the, ca- the preferred, preferred stock, it might be 200, 300 billion. But, you know, companies 30, 40, 50 million of revenue, especially in the software world, you know, those companies, on, on a, not a fire sale, but on their worst days are worth, you know, four to 800 billion. So they're the, on an M&A trade. So they're, the value of the business is higher than the preference stock. So, you know, I mean, people just probably did the math. Well, that's not an attractive return. No, this is kind of our downside. Like we'll get our money back, maybe even plus 50%, but, you know, we're not going to lose money. And that's really, this is proven out with the last 50, Prior to forming Principia, the last 15 years, we had these 25 deals, only a hand, you know, three really had a partial loss of capital out of so nine, kind of a 90% hit rate of positive returns. And, and so again, it's very different. This is why we're, you know, when I, I said at the beginning of this podcast, venture capital is a different ballgame. You know, much like so it is interesting. A lot of people say, Oh, you do venture capital. I say, well, not really. You know, there, you know, there's tennis and badminton. Tennis and badminton, badminton both have a net and a racket, but they're different sports. And and that's how growth equity and venture is. We're, we're, we're playing a different sport than the VCs. You referenced the bull market that we've all been living through really since 2008 in many ways. What type of mistakes are you seeing investors making today? You, you referenced you know, uh, structure, common versus preferred. Are there other fact patterns that you see playing out in today's environment? Yeah, exactly. I, I think this is... you know. This goes back for several years now. You know, there's been a proliferation of, of growth funds. There's a lot of people who are new to the industry, and, and they may not even be young professional. They may be experienced, but not experiencing growth. And I think one of the so yes, first of all, anybody investing in common that that's that started to, that starts to look like a different sport than typical growth equity. So that, that right there is one mistake. Generally speaking, there can always be exception. And then a couple other mistakes I see people making is they. You know, they, they, a lot of people don't understand that tech companies have a life cycle. Tech, you know, their, their technology changes, and it has been since probably Xerox and IBM got started in the nineteen you know fifties. So things come along that will usurp or supplant the t- the new technology from today. And I I feel like I see people underwriting to a grand like North Star vision over the next five ten years that you know. Nobody knows, especially 10 years from now, 
what technology is going to be dominant at, at this stage. So, so I, I think I, some investors come in paying way too high valuations. They also don't understand things can be cyclical, you know, in the economy. So I think, you know, we're, they're, they're starting to learn it this quarter. I think for the last five plus six years, nobody knew anybody coming in the business, again, the growth equity business has only seen up and to the right. And we're always like worried about what happens if the economy stalls, what happens if the market stalls. And, and so we underwrite with that in mind in a more, in a more conservative underwriting manner, which then to be fair leads to lower valuations. And so subsequently we do not invest in a lot of deals because we just can't get there on price that these lead investors are underwriting to. And I, there, there might be a couple other areas. Gabor, do you remember a couple other areas where I mentioned? Hang on. Oh, just, right. The, the, right. The big pit, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> and some of the newer investors also get very focused on analytics and KPIs, key performance ind- indices on, on a company. And I think often miss the big picture of, of what sector this company is in and, and what the cycle will be and what the competitive mode is. And that, that's something that I really saw when I was, you know, kind of arranging these financings because I was watching people do, you know, I had a front row seat to watching a lot of funds due diligence and I'd see them just going down the wrong path, <laughs> missing the big picture. And that, that, that also prompted me to say, you know, there's got to be a better way uh, when we started Principia. And investing in today's environment, inflation is top of mind. The Fed has signaled that they're going to continue to raise rates. Uh, meanwhile, the market has seen some volatility. You know, how is that, all of those various levers impacting your investment thesis today? Well, so this goes back into the underwriting for a down cycle or a a slower growth tech. So, you know, tech is a little bit immune when you get the right company with a new type of platform play within, especially within software for B2B businesses, you know, they can plow right through those slowdowns in the economy. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about an 08, 09 financial collapse of the economy. That, That, you know, just everybody shuts down. But, you know, part of our thesis around going at more B2B companies versus B2C is, especially if you're in the right businesses, they're not immune to slowdowns. Again, their, their arc of their growth will, will come down, but they're not going to flatline. And so when we underwrite a transaction, we have our base case. And then, of course, we do our, you know, that, that more, more principia case, which, and we have to underwrite to get it still that kind of 3x return under our more principia case scenario. I would add also that, you know, when we do our underwriting for each of these businesses, we do look for strong secular tailwinds that can withstand yeah. any sort of down cycle or downturn in the economy. Uh, the business that we're currently raising for, which will be closed by the time the audience hears this, but we're investing into a super exciting platform business for DevOps. And we diligence the use case for this platform very closely. And at a very high level, the need for developers worldwide massively outstrips the supply of developers. No time soon will there be enough developers to catch up with digital transformation, the demand for digital transformation. And so we saw this as a very strong tailwind that would still guide the business help it grow, help it thrive, even during a significant downturn, because we just don't see the need 
for effective, efficient software development, software delivery going away anytime soon, even with a recession. And, we, and let me, I'll, I'll add on to that. We talk to customers on all of our deals and, you know, we, we look at, we, we try and hear customers say, oh yeah, we, we can't get rid of this. You know, it would be very painful to stop buying this or be very painful to stop using this. And, and those are the type of businesses generally we're getting into. So it, it seems like DevOps software, are there other really compelling areas or sectors that you're very excited about right now? Well, we, you know, I think any, anything really to do with the financial infrastructure, you know, the, the pipes, uh, payments, you know, more and more things are just happening online, more and more things are using blockchain. So we're, we are spending more time and diligence on companies kind of in that sector. But, you know, again, about, <laughs> then, we, you know, several, it's what you said about the Goldilocks. We got to find a sector with the tailwinds. We got to find a company with this, generally speaking, a very experienced CEO. And, and you can go into our portfolio and each one of them, it's generally not their first rodeo. And then we have to have good, you know, backers already in the company. And then, and then fourthly, we have to get, you know, the right valuation. So, so it, it, it does take patience. Uh, we're very patient. I mentioned it. We, we're doing two or three deals a year out of 150. And those 150, you know, I don't know, there's maybe 30 that we're spending, you know, quite a bit of time on. So. Uh-huh. I would I would also add in that you know a really exciting area that just happens to be a theme in several of our investments is around AI and ML. So many of our investments so far have had a very strong artificial intelligence machine learning component. You know, Josh referenced software for autonomous mobile robots helping to make distribution centers and warehouses much more efficient. That was our first investment here at Principia in a business called Seagrid. Uh, we then invested in Too Simple, which is an autonomous uh, software for semi trucks, which is really exciting and is taking advantage of the fact that there is a massive shortage of truckers. You know, we have a labor shortage in many skilled positions. There was AI prominently featured in AlphaSense, which is a very sophisticated business intelligence curation tool used by investment bankers, financial professionals, corporate development professionals. And then Paradox was our most recent investment in December of 2021, which is a conversational AI tool that is used by recruiters. Recruiting has become so difficult with the great resignation that increasingly large companies, especially that are hiring into the hourly wage component where there's a lot of turnover, are relying on AI and automation to make their lives easier. So we see a huge tailwind behind AI and ML, and we think we're in the early innings with that thesis. You referenced, you know, deal flow funnel. I mean, given your track record and your deep experience in the space, I'm sure you know a lot of folks, but how do you think about deal flow, making sure that you have a seat at the table for these type of, uh, of transactions that are so attractive? Yeah. When we, when we got started, you know, that was probably the biggest question some of our backers had, will, will we still get the deal flow? And the great news is, you know, we're proof of concept is done. We're, you know, two plus years into this. And uh, we were, I don't know about inundated, but we, we were very busy with deal flow. And it, it comes about because of this, you know, a, a collectively a group of us with 20 plus years experience connected to the VC community, connected to CEOs, you know, our advisory board or, you know, CEOs tend to be friends with other CEOs, CFOs tend to be friends with other CFOs. And so our, our pipeline of transactions is usually pretty full 
uh, that we're uh, diligencing or in or you know in the back in the background going to be diligencing. And so I would say 80, 85% of our deal flow comes from these relationships of that have been long uh, kind of ensconced in, in our, you know, their friendships at this point. And the deal flow I should add is US and Europe. So I've, I've really spent my career looking at, at both continents. And so my advisory board and our, our other partners, and then and another 10 or so percent, we have relationships, obviously, with the investment banking firms, the agents who help assist certain companies in their late stage growth rounds. And so we do get deal flow as well from them. We certainly don't rely on them. But, you know, there, as I like to say, there's no monopoly on intelligence. There's no monopoly on who has good deals. So, you know, the, the, the big firms, Goldman, Morgan, JPM, plus some of the boutique firms, uh, they, they know who we are. I, again, given who our advisory board is, myself, my partners, you know, we're, we're known entities in, in the Valley. And when I use the Valley, I use that term to mean global Valley, not, not just actual physically Silicon Valley. And it's interesting to note of our first four transactions, none of them are actually physically in the Valley. They're in Scottsdale, they're in Pittsburgh, San Diego, and I forgot where the fourth, but, but so, so we're, we're really open to wherever the right company and opportunity is, not just looking in the Valley. Sure. I think that makes a lot of sense and reflects the distributed workforce that we have today. So it, this has been terrific. And I want to thank you for the time. Could you maybe just give a high level uh, bullet point of, you know, you, you talked about the fund structure, but, you know, some of the deal terms maybe, and if people are interested in learning more about engaging with you and, and learning more about the investment opportunity, what the best way for them to get in touch would be. That, that would be great. Hey, me and Gabor, do you want to lead off on that on the deal terms? And Sure, absolutely. So we work exclusively with accredited investors. And if you are interested in learning about our deals as they come up in the future, please visit us at principiagrowth.com and submit an inquiry form. We'd be happy to add you to our list. Um, so we're really excited to have been on the show, Brian, and you know, really look forward to meeting members of the audience and talking more about our exciting thesis. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank you both for the time. And we'll include content information in the show notes and when we uh, distribute it. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck moving forward. It's been really fun to learn about growth equity. I was a little bit <laughs> uh, unsure in my mind exactly what it was, but I love that it's in between VC and this traditional LBO world. Uh, so I wish you both the best of luck mm-hmm. and I look forward to staying in touch and keeping abreast of all your developments. This has been great. Thanks, Brian. And yeah, look, look forward to hearing from people if they're interested in what we're doing. And, and think of us as a, a you know a two and twenty type deal in terms of the, the actual terms. But we, if, if people are interested, we can have conversations. Absolutely. Well, thanks to you both, and uh, appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.